If you could please uh, open your Bibles up to Psalm 119. We will be in verses um, 33 through 40. Now, uh, as I was sitting there in the pew, I, I, I brought my little, my little tracking device up here. Because I, I come to the realization this week, I had once taught over this passage of Psalm 119 over three days. So, and I was reading a book this week, and it was a quote from uh, uh, Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor back in the 1700s. And just in the quote, he talked about how, you know, your sermon may be one to two hours. And I thought, wow, I could probably do one to two hours. But, but for your benefit, I'm watching the time. Uh, so that we could get through this passage of scripture today. And um, so, so this week we, we did, Angela and I had a chance to get away and um, I had an opportunity to do some reading, which 10 or 12 years ago, that would have been just laughable for me. But uh, I, I, I grabbed a book, I grabbed books off my shelf. I was given a bunch of free books at a conference, so I started yanking books and throwing them in my bag and it took off. And um, that, you know, particularly one topic I was looking at was prayer. And, and really because for a while I've been kind of convicted of, of what to me seemed like just an anemic prayer life of my own. And, and uh, attending prayer meetings at, at, uh, at my former church, and it was just something just didn't seem to line up with what, what I would read in the pages of Scripture and the way I ordered my life and, and just, uh, just things in general around a church about prayer. So one of the books I grabbed... Um, by Ian e. Bounds. Ian e. Bounds was a, uh, a uh, pastor back in the uh, same time frame as uh, Spurgeon. He was born a year after Spurgeon. He just lived to 1915. So it was very interesting in reading his book, and he's talking about the modern, the modern church and, you know, re- used the reference as a steam engine, which was, which was kind of neat. But uh, uh, in that, it was just really convicting as to uh, the, the way that our, uh, our church fathers... Uh, the way Christ and what we read in Scripture about prayer and how it was, it was always at the forefront of things to where today it seems to be a last resort. And um, this passage of Scripture we're looking at today, uh, Psalm 119, uh, as many of you know, Psalm 119, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses, and it's composed of 22 stanzas of eight verses each. Uh, the psalm is an acrostic, so... Each stanza begins with a letter, like if it was English, the first one would be A, second stanza would be B, and each line of those would, would uh, start with a corresponding letter. And they do that with all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of these, uh, this stanza we're looking at today is the, is the hey, uh, so the Hebrew letter of hey or H, how we look at it, um, each line of it would begin with that. And... Uh, <clears throat> but the most important, I mean, the most important aspect of this psalm is that through all 176 verses is what it teaches us about the Word of God and what God has revealed of Himself to us through that. And this is just a beautiful, it's a beautiful, heartfelt, it's a lament, it's a prayer, it's a, it's, it's a confession, it's, there's so much involved in here. And, um, Many theologians throughout history feel that this psalm was written as fatherly advice to a son on how to live a God-centered life. And for most of history, this uh, psalm was attributed to King David. It wasn't until about 300 years ago that it was even brought into question that, S- that Solomon could have written it or someone else. So 
as we look at this today, we're going to look at it as this is coming from David. That David is the one that's, that wrote this. And it really doesn't matter because we know in the New Testament in 2 Timothy, it tells us that all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction. So as we approach the scriptures, not just today, but for all of our lives, let's view it in light of that. That this is the word that we are seeking the great God in. And this is where we find truth. And this is where we find our Savior. And this is how we should order our lives. So as we begin, we are going to walk through this thing one verse at a time. We're just going to start with 33 and make our way through it. But before we start, let me go ahead and read the whole passage. Then we'll pray. Then we'll start in verse 33. So beginning in verse 33 through 40, it reads, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promises that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand that the truths of you would be planted firmly and deeply within our hearts, that, may we went, that we may walk in obedience to you. Father, Lord, lead us through the next few moments as we study you and your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so let's just jump right in. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. So the psalmist here, he's asking, he's praying to God, that the Lord would teach him. And we see here the writer, it's, it's, there's humility and repentance in his writing. It's an understanding that he is unable to learn the ways of God on his own. He is turning away from himself. He is turning to the one who is the great teacher, the all-knowing one. And this is true in our society and in, in the world in general, that if we want to learn something, we want to learn from the best teacher, right? No matter what it might be. I mean... In, in the days when my boys played baseball, you might look to the greatest hitting coach or, or the greatest pitching coach to be the teacher of them. We got YouTube now. We can look up. We, we want to learn from the greatest teacher. And this is what David is, is telling us here. He's, he's, he's praying to God that I, I want to learn from you. I want you to teach me. And remember, this is David. He's a mighty warrior. He's a leader of all of Israel, one of the most powerful men in all the kingdom but most importantly is what Scripture tells us about David. And in 1 Samuel and also in Acts, it tells us that he was a man after God's own heart. And David recognizes that all the worldly teachers, wise men, prophets, priests that were at his access, that were there, that none could teach him like the one true God, the one who was the creator, the all-knowing, the all-wise. He understands his own limitation and he repents and turns himself and turns toward God. <clears throat> and he humbly seeks to be taught by God. His desire is to know the ways of the Lord so that he may keep them till the end. 
He desires to walk in obedience to the Lord. For He wants to do this for all of his life and to serve the Lord. He sees the futility of his own ways and the ways of the world. His desire is to seek God. But what we really see is just this humility and repentance. And we got to see that and understand that too. If we want to seek and walk in obedience with the Lord, it begins as David begins in this passage. Turning to God. In verse 34, he continues. He says, give me understanding that I may keep your laws and obey them with all of my heart. Do you see what just happened there? He's asked to be taught. Now he's asking for understanding. And there is a huge difference between being taught and understanding. I know there are several teachers in this room. You teach a class. You've given them all the knowledge that they need, right? How many of them actually understand what was taught? If you teach math, like my wife did for years, it's several. Um, but So there is a huge difference here between teaching and understanding. And what David is praying for is that he longs for is to understand and to grasp the law of God, not just a head knowledge about it, but to truly have it just permeate every fiber of his life. And he asks this in the last half of the verse that he can understand it so that he can keep and observe it and obey the law with his whole heart. And the word heart here is a very interesting word. And, and so many times in the English language, the, the word that we translate from the Hebrew or the Greek, it, it just doesn't give it complete justice. Um, you know, in, if you were to ask somebody, how would you define heart? I mean, how many different nif- definitions would we get in this room? But the Hebrew word, it's defined as the inner man, mind, the will, the conscience, the understanding. And we need to see that in order for anyone to obey and observe what God has commanded, it is every part of us, our heart, soul, mind, being, all of that encompasses. It's every bit of us. It's that conscience in your your mind. Every part of us must, must be grasped and understand. And we need to do this in order to obey. And it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to give us this understanding. See, there's a big difference between, we got David praying Old Testament. He's looking forward to. We live in the New Testament, the new covenant. We have Christ that we can look to. He was looking forward to Christ. We get to look to him and his finished work. So for us, it is the Holy Spirit, a work of the Holy Spirit that that moves in our lives and it gives us understanding. In uh, John chapter 14, verse 26, uh, Jesus tells us that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach us. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said. And this is only for those that have put their faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. True understanding, true knowledge of who God is only comes through faith in Christ. As the psalmist, we must, too, come to the end of ourselves and our own understanding and turn in in repentance. The laws and decrees the psalmist talks about, that would be the Old Testament that we have to look at. And the Old Testament, the Old Testament law really is a mirror. It's so that it points out the sin in your life. You can see the sin. That's what the law did. And you might say that this is only for bad people, right? You know, to point out the, the bad things in their life. 
Yes. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. So it points to every one of us. And this is the bad news. Is that apart from work of the Holy Spirit, apart from the work of Christ, there is no atonement for sin. And in the Old Testament, the law, there had to be a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. And Jesus Christ is the one that has done that. So if you know and believe in Jesus, we must be as a psalmist and continually asking God to teach us, to give us understanding, to show us his ways so that we may walk in those ways. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. Cry out to him and believe with your whole heart, as we defined it from the Hebrew, every part of you, and he is faithful to save. The next petition we see in this prayer in verse 35 David says, direct the path of your commands, for there I find a light. Once again, we see the psalmist. He is turning from his ways. He's turning to God. And he knows the world's ways will lead him down a path of destruction. And we must realize the same truth and ask God to lead us on this Christian walk. Now, the word path is very interesting. In the Hebrew, it would be defined more as a trodden or beaten path. So to walk in obedience to the Lord, to walk the Christian walk, is not to be a trailblazer. It's not something new. It has been laid out before us. There are many saints that have walked before us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Those people watching us, those are witnesses we look to that we can follow. They have walked this path, and it's God's path that we've walked. He's laid it out, and this is the path that he is asking to walk. This course, this, this race, this path, is, it's, it's known by many different things throughout Scripture. It is set before us, and we must understand, as the psalmist does, that it is God's path, and he can lead us on this path. In Ezekiel, in uh, chapter 36, verse 27, the Lord says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Once again, It is the Holy Spirit that causes us to walk in the ways of the Lord. And for us, it is through faith and trust in the finished work of Christ that we do so. And the Holy Spirit, that it dwells within us. The Lord regenerates us and gives us a new heart. And we delight in the path of obedience. Not that it will always be easy. Not that we will be perfect in this. But he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in the book Pilgrim's Progress, there's one one scene in there where... Uh, Christian and his counterparties traveling with, they get off the path and they get tangled up in some webs. It's, it's pretty cool. But a man in white shows up. He frees them and he beats them. And they, walk, they go rejoicing back on the path because he has set them straight and set them back on their path. And this is the uh, this is example we kind of see is that we're going to fail, we're going to fall. And maybe there are consequences that they're going to go cost us for our decisions and our actions. But when the Lord brings us back to him, draws us, and we turn in repentance, that we rejoice in that. Verse 36. So he's asked to be taught. He's asked for understanding. He's asked for the Lord to guide him. Now we see a bit of a shift. David says, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Now at this point, we see the psalmist, his concern is for walking in obedience here. And this request seems out of place. He's already asked to walk in obedience. He's asked for it to be taught. He's asked for understanding. 
but he knows his heart is prone to wander. And he asked God to turn his heart to the law away from himself. We see the need for continued repentance in this verse. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's continued. Until we are glorified standing in the presence of the Lord, we are always in need of repentance. We need to turn from ourselves and turn to God. He is asking, David is asking for a changed heart so that he may walk in obedience. And it's no different from us. If we don't know God, we should be crying out to Jesus to turn to him, for him to change our hearts, for him to open our eyes, for him to give us ears to hear the truth of the gospel. For those of us that are saved through grace of Jesus Christ, this should be our prayer all the more because we are prone to wander. With distractions, they come from everywhere. Some things that seem like good things are distractions. Can just consume us, and we must be careful of this. We must be continually praying as David that our hearts would be turned to God. David knew this, and we need to understand it this, uh, the same as he did. We need to plead with God to turn to Him daily. In verse thirty-seven, turn my eyes from the from worthless things. Preserve my life according to Your Word. Now, in this verse, we see the psalmist plead with God to turn his eyes. In verse 36, he already asked for his heart to be changed. So what, what, what is the point with the eyes? But as we stop and we think, the eyes are the conduit in which sin flows, sin and temptation flows to the heart. It is our eyes that see things. It's the eyes that, that make us desire things. And David is asking here, He's asking for his eyes to be turned away from the worldly things. And we need to turn our eyes back to the eternal things of God, not the temporal things that are around us that can be so easily distracting. I mean, we just had Thanksgiving, all that good food out. Oh, it's so good. Is it good for us? No, my jacket's a little snug this morning because of that. But it's the eyes. I wasn't hungry till I saw that. I didn't want any pumpkin pie till I saw it. That's our eyes, and, and David is asking for his eyes to be turned from the worthless things around him and turned toward God. And his petition continues, preserve my life according to your word. And Charles Spurgeon, I, I can't say it any better than him, so I'm just going to read what he said about this, this passage here, of preserving my life according to your word. He says, give me so much life that dead vanity may have no power over me. Enable me to travel so swiftly on the road to heaven that I may not stop long enough within sight of vanity to be fascinated by it. He is saying, give me so much, make me so enamored with you and your word that I never see anything around me. The peripheral stuff going on that I don't see it. And make this journey and this life so fast that I'm never distracted by it. And he is saying to give his life in his word. <clears throat> and the prayer that he shows here is the great need. And he speaks to where the preserving life is found. It's found in God's word. John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the word. He came in flesh. Life and life abundantly can be found in Jesus. For those that turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in him. It is the Lord that can turn our eyes. It is the Lord that gives us life. And we are helpless to do so on our own accord. We must turn to him. Verse 38. Our 
we're doing good. We're doing good here. Verse 38, fulfill your promises to your servant. So, did my mic just go out? Oh, there it is. Okay. I felt like I went out there for a second. <laughs> fulfill your promises so that, to your servant so that you may be feared. Now we see the psalmist asking God that the word or the promises of God be firmly established in him. There will be times that every doctrine and every promise seems to be shaken in our lives. And we need to ask God to strengthen our faith, his promises, to strengthen his word in us, his truth revealed. But make no mistake about it, the word of God is firmly planted. It will not be removed. It is us that is shaken. It is us that need to be reconfirmed in the truth of who he is, in the truth that he has revealed of himself. And we see a request very, very similar to this uh, to the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 9. He, he, he uh, heals a man's son. And the man proclaims to Jesus, I believe, but help with my unbelief. The man is asking to be helped with his unbelief here. And we should, be, we should take caution to do the same as the psalmist and ask and pray for help with our unbelief. The root of most of the sins in our life, if we were just to boil it down to three things, it's pride, selfishness, and unbelief. And we need to pray to God that he would help with our unbelief. Unlike the psalmist who was looking forward to a promise, a prophecy, we can look to Jesus for those fulfilled promises. We look to Jesus for our strength and our faith in times of unbelief. God has confirmed his truth in us. And we have the cross to look to in times of spiritual despair. Now, as we continue, the psalmist prays that the word of God to be strengthened in him so that he may fear God. He is desiring to fear God. Now, does this seem odd to you, to fear God? We read it in scripture, but to really, really ponder this. To, to, you know, as Dwayne said, go deeper. To fear him. Do we fear him? Have you ever considered fearing the Lord? In Job 28, verse 28, it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This fear the Bible speaks of is an awe and a reverence for God. The God that spoke creation into existence. The book of Hebrews refers to him as an all-consuming fire. And the Hebrew word here, yura, I'm sure I butchered that, but the word yura that is translated to fear in English is used 41 times in the Old Testament when speaking of reverence to God. The psalmist knows who God is and has reverence for the Lord and also knows who he is in his flesh and continually cries out that God, to God for instruction, understanding, leading for a changed heart and for walking in obedience. He continually cries out, to walk in fear and awe of the Lord. The psalmist knows God, but do we? But do we? Do we pray to know him more? Do we pray to go deeper? Do we pray for this type of fear? We would be well served to do so. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 3, he tells us that eternal life is that we know God. And we know him through his son he sent. Now, to kind of give us a better definition of fear, um, there was a, a book, that, a resource I was looking at. It's from Edward Vox. It's called The Preacher's Storehouse. But he lists four types of fear that people have toward God to kind of help us 
help us along this, four, easy, four ways to look at the way people fear God. The first fear of God would be fear of man over God. So absolutely no fear of God at all. Fearful of man before God. The second type of fear is a servile fear or a suck-up fear. Obedience out of fear or dread for punishment. And this is where you see a lot of works-based religions. Like, I got to do this, I got to do this, or the, I'm going to face punishment. I got to do this to gain my righteousness. I have to do this. And when we look in the Old Testament, that's where we see the, the Jewish people. The, the, they were trying to gain a righteousness. The third kind of fear he refers to as initial fear. So we avoid sin partly from fear of hell, from fear of the punishment, the wrath that will come, but partly from love of God. Now he states that this fear is where most of us Christians find ourselves. We're, we're, still, you know, we're still kind of that in-between. There is a little bit of fear of the punishment to come, but then there's also, we, we, want, to, we, we want to be obedient to God because of who he is. Now the fourth fear. And this is the fear that David is praying for and and the fear that we should pray for as well. It's a loyal fear. It's when we are afraid to disobey God only out of love, just strictly out of reverence for him. Not that any punishment we would face, but that we want, we fear him and we love him and we are loyal to him just for who he is and what he has done. This is the fear the psalmist is praying for, a fear that comes from God so that he may not turn from him and he can be obedient out of love for him. No other reason. Verse 39. Take away the disgrace that I dread, for your laws are good. He is asked to be turned and confirmed to the truth of the word so that he may walk in obedience But he knows where this leads. And we do too. In obedience to God in 2 Timothy, Paul warns Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This disgrace that he's spoken of here, he's speaking of here is persecution, ridicule, reproach, or shame that will be faced by believers from the world when we walk in obedience to God. This is dredging, dreading the judgment of man, and he prays that God would keep him from the scorn. He's praying that God would keep him from fearing man over God. He knows what's going to come when he walks in obedience. He knows what he's going to face. And we have a tough time here in our country really coming to grips with this. We really don't face persecution. It may be coming. It may be coming quicker than we think. But but we really haven't faced it. And for many people in the world to step out in faith and believe in Christ, that means banishment from your family. That means immediate death. But they walk in obedience. And this is what the prayer here is to be strengthened in this. And no matter what happens, that I will not fear man above God, that even this disgrace that I dread... I adore you over that. Knowing that to follow God is so much sweeter than following the world. And Paul tells us this in Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For him, 
living and facing what Christ did, that, that is just being a servant of him. But oh, oh, if they take my life, I will be with him. So that is much sweeter. And this is what David is praying, that I know what's coming and help me to get through this, knowing that you are greater. The church history is full of books of men and women that face the same dreadful persecution that man could, could even could imagine. It could even come up with some of the things that they faced were just unimaginable. But through the strength of the Lord, they walked in a loyal fear, in obedience to the end. They heard the glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm sure most of you have picked up that I am a fan of church history. And um, it, is a, it is just something that, I'm a fan of history altogether, but really once uh, church history was something that was kind of introduced to me, I was just shocked at the way these people walked in faith and in words like this, you know, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. So above any persecution that man, God, you are good. This had to be the prayer of these people. And it is such a glorious thing to, to look and read about of, of how they stood faithful in, in the face of such persecutions. Verse 40, we have, we have reached the end here. And I thought this was going to take, I thought I was going to keep you all long. Maybe not. I still got a little time. Verse 40. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. So the closing stanza here, stanza is a declaration. At the close of this stanza, this line. He knows all that he has come, all that he has comes from God and acknowledges his longing to follow after God. We need to take a moment and study what the meaning of longing is so that we can see the importance of what God is revealing to us. So longing here, it, it, is, a, it is a verb, and the definition is to, to desire. Now, we only see this word used two times in all of the Old Testament. We see it here in this verse, and we also see it used in verse 174 of this same song. In verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. We see in the same way that, that David is desiring salvation of God, he is also desiring to obey God's law. What is it that we desire or long for in the way we see David desiring after God? What is it that we desire or long for in a way we see... I'm sorry. <laughs> Do we desire his precepts in this way? Do we desire God in this way, his law, his commands? Do we desire to understand what God has taught and revealed of himself from his word? Do we desire to go deeper? Do we desire to learn more? We must recognize, just like David, that we too must turn to God if we truly want to be taught, if we truly want understanding, if we truly want to walk in obedience to him and his word. If we are to change and follow after God, we must rely on him to change our hearts so that we may, so that we will long and desire for him. And as I was telling you earlier that, you know, I just felt there was some kind of, you know, in my own prayer life. After hearing, hearing, hearing Brother Wayne last, uh, Dwayne, I called you Wayne, I'm sorry. Brother Dwayne's message last week in Thanksgiving and being thankful for things and, um, you know, in, in just looking at my own prayer life. And, and I, I wonder if many of you are like me. 
can I be bold enough to pray? David is praying these words. He is praying these things. He's making declarations in his prayer. He prays with boldness that God would give him the desires to walk in obedience and continually change his heart and to repent. Do my prayers look like that? Do our prayers look like that? Is this what our prayers, or are our prayers more of a, a medical list, a hospital triage? And, and that's kind of where, where, I, where I found myself. And, and in reading, in, in reading about some of the, um, the reformers or the, uh, the pastors of the Great Awakening, they would, the Puritans, they would talk about how they would wake up at 4 a.m., there's no electricity, right? They get up at 4 a.m. There's no alarm clocks. 4 a.m. Spend two hours in prayer before the sun comes up. One that says, well, I can't, I have to spend at least three. Uh, Martin Luther claimed the greatest three hours of his day was spent in prayer with the Lord. I struggle to find 15 minutes. What have they discovered that I have not yet? And is my prayer like David's that, that I may discover this? but let's take a look at the way this verse ends look at the end of this this last verse in your righteousness give me life the psalmist is asking God to give him life in God's own righteousness this is the gospel this is the gospel a thousand years before Christ The gospel runs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. We are unable to achieve righteousness in the sight of God by our own deeds. We might think we are okay, and we often get caught up in this lie. If I live a good life, if I do certain things, if I do all these works, if I go on these mission trips, if I build these houses, if I feed these people, if I pass up these tracts, if I serve in my church, if I teach Sunday school, all of these things, I'll be good. I'll be good. No. It doesn't matter how many houses you build, wells you dig, tracts you pass out, scripture you teach. Apart from the, the finished work of Christ, it's worthless. It is worthless. You're working for nothing. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, it is worthless in the sight of God. And I can't stress this enough, that we cannot be righteous in the sight of God by our works. Romans None are righteous, not one. This is the truth the psalmist knows. And it is the truth that we must realize. We are not good. In fact, we are totally depraved. There is no one that is good. We are completely unable to live a righteous life. Adam sinned in the garden, and that sin was imputed to us. We are born with this sin nature. We must repent and turn to Christ. The psalmist longed for the day of this promised Messiah would come. He longed for it with all of his heart. And in fact, today, the Advent season begins. In many churches around the world, they will be lighting the prophecy candle. It's what Christ is, the promised Messiah coming. That is what David is longing for. That is what we get to remember in this season coming up. Promises fulfilled. And Jesus came teaching these same things. <clears throat> Jesus came teaching and preaching the same truth we see here. Righteousness and life can only be found in him. This is a great theme of redemption 
that runs throughout the Bible. Sin has separated us from God, and Jesus Christ has reconciled us to the Father. The psalmist knows where he would be without God and his life, and he, he understands this. And it's the same place that we find ourselves apart from Jesus. I plead with you to call out to Jesus. Because like the psalmist, without God, apart from God, there is no life. If we want life real and full, it is only found in him. We can't look to a time when maybe we walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, being dunked in some water. All these things don't save us. It is God alone that saves us. So if your hope is in that, look to Christ. He is our hope. He must be our hope. When God opens our eyes to the truth, the only response that we have, that we can truly have, is to believe. Believe. And when we believe, we repent. That means turning away from the world and turning to him. This must be our response. John Newton, the writer of the Amazing Grace, he was one of the greatest theologians of his time. And as he was aging, his mind was beginning to fail. He said this. He said, one thing I still one thing I still I am a great sinner, but my God is a great savior. The Bible is full of more knowledge than we can ever fully grasp and understand. But it is so simple as this. We are great sinners, and he is a great savior. But the question that, that I began this with, and the question I have for each of us today is, do we believe the psalmists? Do we believe the church fathers? Do we believe Christ? Do we believe as, God, as Christ did in the power of prayer? Christ spent many hours alone praying to God. The church fathers spent many hours praying alone. The disciples were sent from, when, when, when Christ ascended, they were sent back to Jerusalem and told to do what? Pray until the Holy Spirit arrives. There was great time and, and great importance on prayer. And I think today, this is probably the greatest and most underutilized resource that we have as the church, is prayer. The American church. Honestly, prayer has probably been neglected and relegated to a last resort instead of a first response and a glorious privilege. There was a... Um, a Chinese pastor that got to visit the United States as China began to open up and he, he came and visited a big church in California and they were showing him around and his words in, in I remember reading this and just how much it, um, just the conviction that came and, and they were showing him around this big church, huge sanctuary, thousands of people, you know, just the latest and greatest thing. And they asked him, he's like, well, pastor, what do you think? He's like, wow, he's like, I'm really impressed what Americans can do without any work of God. And, and, and that struck me. So many things that we attempt to do, so many things that I attempt to do on my own without first seeking the Lord, spending time with him and communion with him in prayer, the greatest resource to the creator of all the earth that we have and we seem to have relegated it to a last resort. <clears throat> my hope and my prayer is that all of us would ponder this truth 
and reality and really look at our lives and see where we organize prayer within it. Is it our first thought? Is it a last resort? I know where I'm often guilty. Oftentimes it is a last resort. And I'm praying now that the Lord would, would change my heart to where I would make that a priority. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth and relevance in our life. And Lord, as we plunge the depths of the truths that we find in it, Lord, as, as, as we find these truths, may you change us. May you change us that we may walk in obedience to what you have revealed of yourself. Lord, I know that I need to repent of how lightly I have viewed the prayer that you have given us, the ability to come to your throne and to bring our petitions and requests before you. Father, Lord, I, I turn from myself. I turn to you. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we would do the same. That at Oak Shade, that prayer would become our first response to anything that we do. Lord, I thank you that you allow us to come together to worship you in this house, to sing praises to you, to open your word, to pray to you, to confess to you, and to give back a small portion to you. I thank you that you allow us to do that in the safety and comfort that we have. And Lord, may we not ever take that for granted. Father, Lord, I ask that you would be with us this week as we go out, that we may honor and glorify you in all that we do. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.